All right, guys. We'd also like to say thank you for showing up on Saturday. I don't know how your <laughs> evening went, but it's getting close to the closing hour, so we appreciate you guys being here and spending some time with us. Uh, we're going to talk about some cases um, uh, about opiate therapy, opiate tapering, kind of some hot-button topics and, and issues that we think are really, really important, not just for veterans but for everybody uh, involved. None of us have anything to actually disclose, um, so we, we, we're going to present this uh, as our own opinion, not necessarily the opinions of the VA. Uh, we also are going to give real cases in which patients, um, actually the actual care that was given to patients, these aren't necessarily our patients, and maybe we would have handled something a little bit differently, as I'm sure that many of you would as well. But, but we're, and maybe we'll have a discussion about those types of things where there are differences. But uh, we'll, we'll go through the slide set. We're not going to hit every single uh, slide uh, at the same amount of time because, because we do have a lot of slides to get through. But for, for those of you, just to be complete, this will all be available in the SharePoint so that you don't miss out on any of the data points or any of the lectures, I mean, on the, uh, any of the data points uh, or the journal articles. Uh, and then we did change the names just a little bit for privacy. As we go through the learning objectives, we're actually going to hit on the points that we think are really, really important uh, and identify those things. So I'm going to go ahead and skip over this. And then with that, we're going to start with Dr. Sandbrink, who's going to go ahead and go through this case, uh, the very first case we have. Yeah, thank you, Sanjo. Um, so the first case is a patient who is a, make sure that I stay in a range here. So a young veteran, 32-year-old, who came to the VA Transfer, transferring from the DOD with his long-standing complaint of low back pain. Uh, he has a history of PTSD, as you can see. Clearly, on the MRI, he has uh, significant degenerative changes, certainly more than expected for his age. Uh, and he has both axial as well as radicular features. Now, as comorbidities already said that he has PTSD, he has a mild TBI, uh, and he has been compliant. Uh, the military started him already on opiate medication. There's no history of illicit drug use. Uh, as you see here, that he has been on morphine, uh, sustained release, 45 milligrams, three times a day. And with that medication, he came to the VA. He was also on an SSRI, but not on a benzodiazepine. Uh, so in general, though, I think this is what we want to ask. This. So this patient comes to you as a new patient, not really involved in your care, and uh, is on uh, you know, a fair amount of opiate medication, certainly considered high dose by standards nowadays. Right? The question is really here, and this is if you can have a show of hand, we don't have the auto-response system, but I would just love to know, where are you now? At the end of one week of pain week, right? I mean, <laughs> so where are you in this regard? Um, I, we don't have a pre-pain week and post-pain week, but at least we know where you are now. And if you are, first of all, let me ask, who of you is an actual prescriber or sees patients for medical management, including prescribing? So that's, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's a majority, right? Now, I'm going to ask everybody to answer this here because you're probably, even if you're not the prescriber, you're probably in a treatment setting together with team members that are prescribers. And I think you can maybe reflect on what you do in your team or what you think your providers in the team or the actual prescribers should be doing, right? So the, the question is really the first thing here, and this is a real question in so far as there was a recent analysis where they had um, patients, basically like a secret shopper, calling up practices and said, I am a long-term opioid therapy. I have lost access to my provider. 
are you willing to take me on? And not the majority, but a significant number of primary care providers and specialty care says, we don't take patients on opiate medication. So, you know, this is totally non-judgmental. So I'm just asking you in many ways, where would you be at this point? Is there any show of hands? Do you have, are you in a practice where you don't take over patients who are on opiate medication? All right. So the other one is, uh, second B, uh, I accept the patient, but I would tell him right away, I'm not going to prescribe the opioids. I can do everything else for you, but no opioids. Maybe that's very similar, right? Um, now, the third one, I take over his care, but I make it clear right from the get-go, I am going to get you off opioids pretty fast, right? So, you know, we're going to wean you off within a few weeks. Uh, that's what I can help you with, but I'm not going to do any prescribing. Well, who is in that camp? All right. Okay. And then who's in the camp D? You know, we keep the opiate regimen for now, but we will work with you over time to gradually reduce it. It might take many months. It may take longer, years, but we will work together to do this. Who's in that one? All right. And then the third one is, okay, um, let's just take this patient on, and uh, we are going to prescribe the medication for now and then see what happens down the road. All right, so most of you are in the camp D and E. That's really interesting. All right, very good. All right, so this is what happened with this patient. So he uh, enrolled in the clinic. His morphine medication was gradually reduced over many, many months uh, in a, in a patient-centered way. Um, he was then at 30 milligrams three times a day. He was starting gabapentin. The SSI was continued uh, for his mental health uh, condition. Uh, he engaged in the non-pharmacological strategies. As you can see here, he didn't do the CBT because he said, I'm too busy with my mental health stuff and the PTSD protocols that I'm in. Um, he certainly was complying with his opioid risk mitigation strategies. He was on time, no problems with that, right? So um, I think now he comes to the point, and maybe we can skip this, but he's at a point now where he says, okay, I'm at 30 milligrams three times a day. And um, I, I feel, that, would you please just leave me on that right now? I don't want to come down now. So that's what the clinic did. They said, okay, we're going to keep you on this. But because we are on a stable dosage now, we're going to discharge you back to your primary care provider, right? And we want the primary care provider to see and continue the prescribing for now. We work collaboratively with your primary care provider, but we, we are not here to just do monthly prescriptions. Right? So he would advise that uh, he would be transferred back to his primary care provider the next month. PCP was notified. We said we write one more time next month, make sure the transition happens smoothly. Um, and then he'd come and picked up his medication, and then the day after that prescription, he was found dead at home by his father. And only thereafter, it was clear that, you know, two weeks before his last opioid medication renewal, he had come to his mental health provider and talked about his difficulty with sleep, worsened anxiety. He was started on diazepam at that time. Um, and we know that the, the, from the autopsy that the morphine levels were certainly significantly higher than you would have expected on the dosage, considering also that he was on this dosage for, had been on this now from, for seven months, right? It's been the last six months, the dosage really hadn't changed. Uh, the diazepam was there, alcohol was in there, right? Now, this was before we did many of the risk mitigation strategies that we have, the alerts about opioids and benzos that are now automatically embedded in our electronic health record. Uh, but this certainly is a case that reminds us about uh, what can go wrong. 
Right. So I'm going to hand this over to Sandra. Sure. So, and I think, you know, this this particular case highlights a lot of factors and and things that we're obviously concerned about. So the opiate prescribing itself, that's an issue in the, in the sense that that patient was on fairly large doses of medications by today's standards, uh, especially if you reference the CDC or the VADOD guidelines. There are some interactions that we talked about with certain drugs. So the opiates and the benzodiazepine that was recently uh, prescribed, the two can you know, increase the risk for, for overdose as well. Patients' comorbidities are an issue. So if somebody has renal dysfunction or liver dysfunction, uh, or has sleep apnea. Those things all impact on their ability to, uh, to process those medications and the risks can go up. And then obviously any sort of mental health condition. So we know this gentleman had PTSD. He also had a mild traumatic brain injury. Not a mental health condition, but may make cognition a little bit challenged in certain cases. So all of these things are risk factors for increasing uh, death for, or, or overdose for certain patients. And I think all of us have sort of seen this in some capacity. This, this data is somewhat old. It's from 2011. But uh, the, the notion is the more drug you're on, the, the higher the risks are. And so that's why the CDC took a stab at this and said, well, you know, the, the risk, there's no safe dose of opiate. But on the other hand, the risk starts to climb pretty dramatically uh, once you start to get between 20 and 50. And then obviously over 50, things get a little bit worse. This is sort of the same diagram. But what it really highlights is that the notion is the most number of patients who have problems or with overdose are between 20 and 50 milligrams. And that's because that's the biggest sweet spot. That's where most patients are. Uh, you know, if you looked at millions of patients on, on medications, the vast majority are going to be in that dose range. You're not going to have as many patients in the 100 or 200 or 300 range nowadays. So, so we know that there's a higher expectation in that, that group. But these are the things we just talked about is there are risk factors that would, would make somebody at higher risk, and those are the things we should all take very seriously. So sleep apnea, uh, dysfunction of kidneys or, or, or their liver, the older that they get, pregnancy, of course, mental health conditions, any sort of substance use disorder. And also, if somebody had a previous history of, of overdose or a previous history of suicide attempts, those can also be impacting on somebody's condition. So, so I'm going to skip this slide and go right to case B. Um, and. Dr. Sambrick, you're up again. <laughs> okay. All right. Second case. Um, so this is a, a patient who is 63-year-old. You can see this here. So he comes really with a chief complaint of neck pain, but he also has very long-standing lower back pain, you know, sciatica with it. Really has a diagnosis of cervical radiculopathy as lumbar radiculopathy. He had a fusion in the past. Uh, as you can see, no really improvement with this. Limited in his walking. Pain scores are high. Imaging clearly shows significant structural changes not only in his neck and low back, but also in his shoulder. Now, he has many medical problems, right, including mental health as well as medical comorbidities. Uh, so he is on sleep, you know, sleep apnea, he doesn't use his CPAP, uh, he's somewhat overweight, uh, and he has a history of PTSD and depression. Um, it's a negative family of medical history. But, you know, he also smokes, uh, but he does work. So he's engaged uh, in uh, employment, uh, which limits his ability to participate in, uh, obviously, in, in some of this, what we offer. So this is medication regimen, right? I mean, he said he failed the physical therapy, it was just not helpful, he doesn't want to do it again. He's on the oxycodone continuous release or controlled release. I mean, so oxycontin, 30 milligrams twice a day, oxycodone, 5 milligrams in addition. Now, he had taken more than prescribed in the past. Uh, right, his now his wife comes, she accompanies him for the visit, and she says, I'm monitoring his prescription. I'll make sure that he doesn't take more because 
we can't quite trust him basically, right, in that regard. Um, and um, he's also on some gabapentin, fairly low dose, venlafaxin also, and relatively low dose prescribed for his mood. And the non steroids were non effective. So, this is an exam. Uh, primarily, uh, just to summarize it, he clearly has features suggestive and documenting or consistent with uh, cervical radiculopathy, mostly at the C6 level and the lumbar radiculopathy at L5, evidence of the prior surgeries, significantly reduced range of motion over his spine, his lasik, his state like rising sign is positive on the right side, clearly indicating ongoing um, changes there. So this is just a summary here, right? So this is a patient who has clear structural changes, clearly significantly impacted by his pain, multiple medical and mental comorbidities, uh, and things that we need to address, right? Weight, smoking, um, and, and the opiate dosage as a concern. So I think I'm handing this over to you, Robert. So the question now comes here, okay, so where are we now in regard to opiate medication, right? We all need to learn nowadays, right? What, What's the dosage of a patient? We need to make sure that we calculate the morphine equivalent daily dosage correctly. So, so I think, uh, wow. Yes, you can hear me? <laughs> so uh, bless Lynn McPherson. We go way back. She does our dosing calculations. She's been doing it at Pain Week for years. So really, yeah. Uh, so the bottom line is, I think most of you, by the classes you could go through, uh, basically you should know, and we're going to look at a chart in just a minute, but what, m most of you people, what do you think the answer is? Is Who would say A, B, C? There we go. Yeah. And, and what is that based on? Anybody, what is that based on? What ratio? One and a half, right? So there's a basic underlying theme, and the, uh, the bottom line is, even if you don't know, you always, you, thank you. Uh, I don't need that stuff. I just like to talk. So, and you know that. Don't even go there, E. Uh, bottom line is this. These charts are important, but they are charts, and this must be patient-specific tapers, but we do have these conversions. Hydrocodone to morphine, I always laugh because I, I've heard it at our facilities for 13 years. Well, it's just hydrocodone, but if it's one-to-one -one with morphine, it's basically the same thing. So if I look at morphine and I look at hydrocodone and then I look at oxycodone, which is 1.5 times that strength, there we go. These are our conversion tables. But it's much more important about these tables, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, okay? And by the way, uh, these case studies are a little bit leading because we're moving toward the CDC and VA, uh, CDC guidelines and the VADOD guidelines. See, so these are a little bit leading, and uh, we're going to come back. And I would just mention to you, uh, go ahead, Sanjo. Oh, yeah. So. So the idea behind this is, you know, you, you take on this new patient or you may take on this new patient, and I think there's a lot of words on this slide, but I think most of us would want to know a little bit more about this patient um, and before making any decisions about their care. Uh, would you switch them to op this different opiate? Would you convert them to something else? You could do all those things, but, but, but most of us would actually probably choose the, uh, the latter, and, and that's just to find out a little bit more about who this person is. And so all of these things are things that we do routinely to assess somebody, but to do a deeper dive, I think one of the things that's really important and thing that's, that's oftentimes overlooked is discussing the patient with their previous provider, and that could be their previous primary care provider or their previous pain provider. 
finding out why that patient is transferring uh, from that care. And because something may have happened with a previous provider, uh, other issues may have arisen, and, and understanding that um, is really, really important. It also gets you the obvious information that you might need. Did the patient already have a sleep study? Do they have sleep apnea? Do they have an EMG and nerve conduction study or MRIs? Things that might help lend the, the, the disease state that's causing this patient pain so you understand that patient a little bit better. Now we all do basic hygiene in terms of, of opiate care. So PDMP checks are, are pretty common. Urine drug screens are obviously very, very common. In this particular case, this patient's urine was completely negative of any findings, right? And, and so the question is, is knowing what you guys have learned about urine tox screens, is that appropriate? Remember, he was on oxycodone, uh, or oxycodone and oxycontin, I guess, and, uh, and, and then ended up having a completely negative urine. Would that be something that you guys would expect? Right, so the emphasis there is in particular, though, that he said he had run out more than a day ago, right? So that complicates everything a little bit. So uh, I'm just going to throw that in there for... Sure. So, <laughs> so, so most people would say, yeah, I, I ran out a day, but if you've been taking it every single day, we would expect that drug to be in the system for a little bit longer than just one day. So, so we would expect to find something. But the problem is urine drug screens are not, um, they're not completely consistent, so oxycodone doesn't necessarily show up in all opiate screens, and so we wouldn't expect it to be a positive test. So we wouldn't imply that the patient was doing something inappropriate. We would want to order the right test, which is an oxycodone screen. And then the one caveat to that even is if somebody just took their oxycodone or uh, they're on a very high dose, sometimes that oxycodone bleeds over and, and causes a false positive on the opiate screen. So, so getting an opiate confirmation can be very, very helpful in patients like that. Uh, our lab, for instance, within the VA in LA will save the urine for one week, and then we can actually send a confirmation. I think many other labs are very, very similar, and so you can get the information if you need it. And, and so the take-home point, at least, uh, again, another busy slide, but the take-home is uh, probably should be checking your patients who are low risk once a, once a year, uh, but, but we define, you know, as a risk increases, we define the, the number of urines we order, and that could be weekly if you really have a patient who may get in trouble very quickly with a, pe a previous history of of substance use disorder and things of that nature. Uh, learn how to uh, interpret these because no patient and no person wants to be uh, accused of doing something that they didn't do. It can break that patient-provider uh, relationship, so be careful with that. Uh, in terms of, uh, of what we basically asked before we actually order the urine is when did you last take your medication? How much did you take? By the way, should I see something in this urine that I didn't expect? I, we throw that out there because sometimes if the patient says, no, absolutely not, doc, I, I took everything exactly as prescribed, okay. So then we can have a point of discussion a week later or whenever if that urine is not what we expect it to be. Uh, this is a slide that you'll forget. Uh, just remember that GCMS is a pretty good way of, of, of getting um, information if you're looking for it. It is, I think, one of the gold standards. But but, but all, I know that this has been covered ad nauseum by other lectures, so we'll skip over this. Uh, and then, and the Dr. Sandbrick, you're back up. All right, so just a little bit back to his mental health information, right? So he, he is in PTSD, he has his PTSD, the diagnosis. He's in mental health care for that. Uh, you know, as I said, he has no history of illicit drug use, but he does report depression and anxiety symptoms. And, you know, for, for the people who are in the VA, whether the format is like this or similar, but we certainly screen every patient who comes to the pain clinic 
with a PHQ-2, which is a question three and four here. Do you have any in the last two weeks? How often have you been bothered by little interest or pleasure in doing things, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? These two questions are the screening questions for depression. This patient really obviously uh, indicated his scores with three is that he has severe depression. Uh, he also has uh, suggestive of severe anxiety based on the first two screening questions. Uh, and he screened positive uh, actually also for suicidal ideation. So this really required a follow-up at him at the same time as well uh, for a patient. Anybody who is on that last question, which is a question nine of the PHQ-9, who is above zero and needs to be assessed further with the Columbia um, suicide severity risk analysis and then with a, uh, with a, if that's positive, then also with a suicide assessment. The other thing that we do is uh, for patients who are on opiate, or before you start them on opiate medication, the opiate risk school is also mentioned in the CDC guideline as one tool. Uh, it really is meant for primary care to be administered before you start an opiate therapy. It really isn't appropriate that much, or it's really not meant for patients who have been on opiates for long term. But for this particular patient, what I'm saying is it's really... Um, I mean, he has some misuse of his prescription drug, but I put it in question uh, because when, if this ORT was done before it was started on opiates, it would have been zero, right? So we really would have been a very low, really low risk. Um, you know, anything zero to three is low risk, four to seven is moderate risk. If you are eight points or higher, you know, that's high risk, and it's a close to 90% of having aberrant behavior during opioid prescribing if you initiate it. But he was being in the category of low risk, which is less than 6% of likelihood of having aberrant behavior. Uh, in our clinic, we also routinely use the catastrophizing, the pain catastrophizing scale. Um, you see those 13 questions there. They are really, in many ways, I think, for us, a marker that a pure biomedical approach is most likely going to fail. Right? If you just you know, rely on medication management, and, and things like that, you're not going to be successful. But this patient screened for 45, very high level of catastrophizing. You know, really, and, and you see the subscale, so it checks for helplessness, also for magnification of the pain complaint, and, and the rumination, the ongoing thinking about the pain condition. Uh, so this really means we have to get involved here that behavioral therapy approaches, mental health has to be part of this. Um, the additional information that we have here is then, of course, a discussion with the patient about what is that that you would like to do, right? I mean, where are you in this approach? And he said, like so many patients, in the long run, I don't want to be on this opiate medication. And if you can have help us, me to come off, yes, I'm, I'm all for that. But don't do it now. Don't do it today, right? I'm not quite ready for that. Uh, so um, he, and he really issued concerns about the withdrawals and the reduction in the near future, right? But the family said, hey, we're going to support him and uh, we will be there to monitor him closely. So this is really just in summarizing it. So you have the medical mental health factors and we clearly know that he has ongoing severe mental health, anxiety and depression symptoms, high catastrophizing, clearly at significant risk from the mental health side. So with this information, um, I think... Um, we were not going to do an audience response here. What we ended up doing is rotating a patient, mostly because, among others, um, the OxyContin controlled release is not on the formulary. And he had never tried the formulary alternative, which is morphine-sustained release. Right? So he was, he was switched over. And I think I hand this over to 
Sure, um, I, I could do this, <laughs> uh, or, or, or Robert. But, but the, so just to, to, to boil it down, uh, as we mentioned, oxy, uh, oxycodone is one and a half times stronger. It gives about 150 milligrams of morphine equivalent. And, and the concept is whenever you switch from one drug to the other, we, we consider um, uh, cross tolerances. Uh, we, try to, we try to accommodate for cross tolerance by reducing the dose a little bit. So in this particular situation, we would actually uh, drop it down to 90 milligrams, which is answer C, uh, and, and that would improve the potential risk from transitioning from one drug to the next so that the patient doesn't overdose. You can be more aggressive uh, than this if you really want. Uh, some people are less aggressive. The idea simply is that, that the patient should be warned that they may have some withdrawal symptoms. I think it's reasonable to, to, to be more aggressive, to drop the, the dose, knowing fully well that you can talk to the patient and say, hey, if you're feeling lousy, you're starting to have withdrawal symptoms, please give me a call. We can give you some short actings to shore up the gap. The idea is not to leave the patient in pain or, or suffering, uh, which can cause obvious problems, but it's to make sure that we don't overdose the patient because that's a different conversation if the patient overdoses, uh, and that's not a pleasant conversation. If any of you have ever had that, uh, it's a difficult conversation to have with a patient or the patient's family. Uh, so so this, in this particular situation, we chose 90 milligrams as the correct answer. As I mentioned, uh, people do change uh, conversions depending on drugs, specifically with methadone and fentanyl. Be careful. If you, if you are a pain provider, obviously this may be what you do. But, but if you're not a pain provider, get some expert um, guidance on this because you can get in trouble with methadone fairly quickly. Fentanyl is very, very similar as well. If you think about a drug um, that absorbs through the skin, it, it, you know, and depending on how somebody's skin is or the heat in the room or the, the, the quality of the skin, it can change absorption and you can have problems very, very quickly. But, but most other things we tend to drop at 25 to 50%. I've heard some people even dropping when they switch to methadone by 90%. I think that may be more dramatic, but, but, but people do it. Um, so that is a possibility as well. And so um, back to... So just to follow up, I mean, uh, so he was switched over to MSCON, but he didn't tolerate it. Um, you know, he, he said that he developed a rash uh, two weeks later, and certainly it cannot be continued. He discarded it. He was switched back to oxycontin, uh, this time at lower dose, which is in the very end. I mean, after a few weeks of adjustment, he ended up on oxycontin uh, 20 milligrams twice a day that he had continued for the next six months later and is now gradually being increased, but decreased. But as you, as you see, I mean, we obviously, the other medication measurements were optimized. So the benlafaxin was increased. As an SNRI, it really has, from what we feel, functioning uh, effect as an SNRI for pain if you bring it up to 150 milligrams or higher and not in lower dosage. And uh, because he didn't tolerate all medication topicals which started, especially to the shoulder. Um, so I'm going to start then with the third case. Um, this is the last case that we have. So this is a 49-year-old woman, you know, get more complex over time here, right? So this is a pretty complex situation here. She had prior lumbar spine surgeries. She had arachnoiditis, uh, well-established. Uh, I don't want to go too much into the detail of her history here. It clearly, though, severely affected often what would be categorized as failed back syndrome, although that's just a description, really. She had arachnoiditis affecting her lumbar nerve spine nerve root, I mean, a lumbar nerve roots uh, that were seen on, uh, on imaging and clearly also had findings clinically consistent with it. She had a spinal cord stimulator already placed, but uh, that, that did not work out, never worked for her, and she quit using it. She clearly has significant pain and going to the lower extremities in particular and then the lower back and extensive changes of the cauda equina nerve roots with clumping, you know, all the typical changes of, of arachnoiditis. 
She also has mental history of depression. She's overweight. Um, you can see here um, that the screening was positive for depression. She has a smoking history, started recently, uh, but really also has, has poor sleep, and the bladder function is probably related to the, to the um, spinal involvement, walking with a crutch, intermittently using a wheelchair. So she comes on a regimen of methadone 10 milligrams four times a day and fairly high amount of oxycodone immediate release, 30 milligrams uh, six times a day as needed every four hours. Uh, she had been on opiate medication for more than 10 years, um, really since her last uh, second spine surgery. And on this high dose, um, you know, for the last five years, as you can see, she was on OxyContin in the past, uh, but that had been fairly recently switched over to methadone due to cost. Never tried morphine sustained release, also not on that, and uh, was never on that. And uh, you can see here, she had also a fairly good dose of gabapentin, bupropion, uh, non steroids as you can see, were prescribed but not helpful. So the question really was here, you know, what do we do with this lady, right? And uh, also, what is the, you know, to just calculate this, what is actually the morphine equivalent daily dosage for a patient who is on methadone? I think, Robert, you're going to take that off. So uh, <laughs> kind of a little bit of a timeout here. While we First of all, we've gone through three patients. And the uh, reason we're going through the slides so fast is really because they don't want me to talk because I can go on forever, honestly. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, when we look at this patient, this is a real problem with methadone. You can look at this chart, and typically when we look at dosing ranges on charts for fentanyl methadone, they are not by... They are unidirectional, not bidirectional. So when you're leaving methadone and fentanyl, we typically do not use those charts because that, that really is a very risky business. So actually, they do use this chart, and they use an 8 to 1, which gives you a very high morphine equivalence. And uh, overdose can be quite unforgiving when you take a patient off of methadone. And the other problem with methadone is the many uh, patient-centric variabilities, right? SIP-mediated drug interactions, lipophilicity, when we're talking about methadone and we're talking about fentanyl, lipophilicity is a big player in the game where morphine is not. How do you equate that to the conversion? The very long half-life, we don't know. It's range variability for different patients. Is it 15-hour, 22-hour, or 200-hour half-life? Huge difference if methadone's still there two weeks from when you started it, and now you're going to put them on 500 milligrams of morphine equivalents? I don't think so. That would never, ever happen to my clinic. Uh, it's just not going to happen. First of all, nobody should do this unless you're a subject matter expert or you're working together with a subject matter expert. You don't mess with fentanyl uh, or, and methadone because of the patient variability. A range is a patient variability, huge issue. Um, so also I want to be very careful too as we do these numbers and we can, let's go on to the next slide. So there's the total morphine equivalence, which I would have never done. And here's the other thing. Uh, and they wanted to go to long-acting. Um, let's go ahead. They did the dosing reduction, 25. We all know about the 25 to 50% uh, compensatory for uh, re dose reductions for incomplete cross-tolerance. This is a different beast when you're talking about leaving methadone or fentanyl and go into a different opioid. Completely different beast here. So there's a lot of caution here. And I'm very, get a little nervous about these types of things. So uh, basically, here's what has been done. When, we're look, when you're looking at A, B, C, and D, these are actually what have been done by different providers under different scenarios. Some of them I look at and I'm horrified. Others are maybe appropriate. They're gray. I could go either one. Some are very appropriate. Uh, so basically, I look at that. 
Uh, Sandra, I didn't know what you want to do with the slide. 200. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. So basically for me, and I know a lot of providers when we're leaving methadone, we basically, it has the built-in reduction. We use about a three to one when we're leaving methadone and we're going to another opioid. And here's the other thing I want to step back on. When you're talking about, here's my other problem. I really, it's a pet peeve of mine. If I'm going for methadone or fentanyl, the last thing in the world I want to start a patient on, knowing that half-life is hanging around, we have no clue how long it's going to hang around, is start them on another long-acting opioid. Why would you do that? If you've got a patient who's already on a short-acting and they're using it a lot, why not use that as a scheduled medication? It, remember, if you take a short-acting opioid and you keep it in a scheduled regimen, then they're going to reach steady state. They're already at steady state. And if it's the same short-acting they're already on, you don't have to worry about incomplete cross-tolerance. Then what do you do? Then you look at the methadone and go, all i got to worry about now is just the methadone because I still have the oxycodone he was on. I still have the oxycodone that was four or six times a day, but reg he was taken on a steady regimen, so we know he's... A at steady state. We know he's stable on that. There's no worry. What we have to compensate for is the 40 milligrams of methadone. Basically, we use a three to one. So if that's 120 milligrams of methadone, uh, or excuse me, 120 milligrams of morphine equivalents, basically 90. So what I can do, and what I would have done in this situation, I would have taken somewhere between 60, 90 milligrams of oxycodone PRM base, drop it down a little bit, be very safe, uh, and replace that PRN. So you have your scheduled, if you will, your scheduled oxycodone short-acting, your PRN use. As you feel more confident moving forward, the days start to go by, and you know the methadone or the fentanyl is coming down, you can start looking at that PRN use. Hey, Bob, it wasn't enough. I'm, I'm not sedated. I'm doing very well. Could you bump up the PRN? Yeah, absolutely. We see the patient. Things are okay. He's stable. That's fair enough. And we meet again. Then you can roll over. What, what is the big hurry to get to morphine? Yes, it may help me lower his dose, right? But I want to do it safety. To me, safety is the prioritization, not the complete efficacy of pain management. Yes, I I'm cognizant of that. I want to help the patient with that. But PRN use is very forgiving. If he's starting to, a patient is starting to get sedated, you can pull back on the PRN use. You're going to be okay. Long-acting agents are not. So I really had a lot of problems with this slide. Going to a long-acting agent, using a chart with ranges to get out of methadone, just everything about this thing bothered me. So you can see why they don't so, want me to talk. So, I just, yeah, so, so, okay. So we're... we're so, just, and what I, we should just put a little break in that. So when we looked at this, each one of us had a different answer of how we would have tapered this person. So we realized there is going to be variability. I think but your take-home point is perfect, is you want to do the safest thing possible for that patient, and you want to be collaborative. You want to make sure your other providers are actually on board, uh, as does the patient, as much as the patient is interested on being on board. In safety concerns, you might have to take, um, you know, take the – you might actually have to do it anyway. Uh, sometimes you can't get the patient on board, and that is a challenge. But but we'll go to the next slide. Go ahead, Freedom. Right, just uh, to summarize where she was. So she was switched over to uh, she was switched over to morphine sustained release, as you can see here, and oxycodone PRN. Uh, but you know, um, this is here. Um, all right, so this is really the follow up after many years. So over many years, then engaging with the pain clinic. 
she made significant success, you know, progress in many ways, right? She, she quit smoking, she lost 30 pounds of weight. Uh, she was switched over to duloxetine, which really worked better for her. Uh, the open medication that was left at the same amount for quite some time, several years, but over the years gradually reduced. So 10 years later, so the switch was really made more than 10 years ago, she's now on morphine 45 milligram three times a day and, and a small amount of oxycodone. Uh, still, and the morphine equivalent daily dosage, there's an error there, it's 180 milligrams uh, a day at this point. Still high, so still an ongoing engagement to bring her down gradually over time further. But th this is really here now where we want to talk a little bit about what the CDC prescribing guideline actually say. Right, so in Robert, I think um, you were going to take the lead here. Uh, we'll, slip, we'll just skip this slide. This slide just basically says, and really the take-home point for the CDC was that, that the, the goal of this guideline was to improve communication between clinicians and patients about the risks, which they felt weren't being discussed on a regular basis. They also discussed the notion that there's not great evidence for, for long-term opiate therapy. Uh, and so knowing that, they, uh, they sort of pointed these things out. These are the actual 12 uh, items that were discussed. Um, do you want to just go to the next slide? Uh, Robert? Because these are the controversial ones. Yeah, so uh, just a little bit of time out here. So when we did these three cases, uh, we were looking at the different components, right, of risk mitigation and utilization of opioids. We're looking at the different tools, but these are all components. The opioid risk tool, uh, PDMP, all of these things that we know we need to do, but the elephant in the room is not those individual components. Yes, you have to be well-versed in all of them to do the right thing, to make the assessment and the appropriate given determination. The elephant in the room is making that given determination. Is it medically indicated to taper? Is the harms greater than the benefit that patient's getting? And who makes that decision? And so what we get now, we, get, we have two basic guidelines, and we're gonna be talking about the CDC right now. And as we speak, what we talk here, what applies, we look at the dosing limits, right? They're called limits, but really it's a caution sign because of the data we looked at before. Greater than 90 milligrams, we encourage you not to go above that, right? 50 milligrams of CDC talks about caution because we saw on that uh, graph as you went up about a fourfold increase in overdose risk, right? And then as it went up to 100, it was a seven to 11 fold depending on the patient population. So these are, so how is, so what we're really talking about and concerns is we use the CD guidelines and VADOD guidelines, but we don't want them misapplied, right? And so what did the CDC just come out and do? Clarification of their guidelines. Because what people will do, and I can tell you I see this constantly in my notes, uh, in my CPRS notes, and progress notes, I'll look and it will say, the provider say, I can, this, honest to God, I can no longer prescribe opioids because the VADOD mandates that. I, I tell you that's what I'm seeing. Or our policy says that. I cannot prescribe above 50 milligrams because that is a mandate by the CDC DOD. No, that is a misapplication of the guidelines, whether it's intentional or just inverted. Now, do I agree with the lower? Absolutely, and I work very hard to try to get patients down. The bottom line is, this is a patient-centric, this whole thing, these three different patients we looked at, and I had a lot to say about that first patient. I see a lot of problems with that, but I held my breath because we need to get through the slides. These are patient-centric. All three of these patients, everyone has a different clinical presentation, and then we have to decide, is the regimen appropriate? Is the risk greater 
to continue that opioids, or if we start tapering the opioids, does the risk escalate exponentially? And I think some of you know that can be true. We have uh, patients who have been baked for suicide attempt, and take, uh, pulling those patients off the opioid, even the threat of doing that, can send them over the top. I've been there, done that. I've also had patients use the suicide card, if you will, to keep an opioid taper from taking place when it was clinically indicated. So the bottom line is the CDC and the VA DOD guidelines are not saying you must drag all patients off opioids. You must drag all patients below 90 milligrams or 50 milligrams a day. This is a patient-centric. You look at the patient. You do the best you can in your assessment. Use your team, if you have a team, to come up with the best plan of care for that patient. Some of my patients that I've tapered down are still above 100, although I got to admit personally, I like to get them down. That's just me. I've got some at 90. I've got some that I've taken down from 30. They're on 30, and they're doing very well, and they were on 400 milligrams a day. And I did that over 18 months to two years for some of these patients. They're on 30 milligrams a day. They had severe COPD, uh, compromised renal function, uh, and we're doing very well with them, but it was done very slowly and very thoughtfully. So the VA and C, uh, DOD guidelines, CDC guidelines are not mandating all these things. It's got to be patient-centric. Uh, so maybe we should go back yes. for just a second to actually take a quick look at the the difference. So this is yeah. the this is the VA DOD guidelines. They do deviate a little bit from the CDC guidelines. So Robert, you want to just highlight? Yeah, those? absolutely. So I think this is very important. 2016 the CDC guidelines come out, and they say basically number one recommendation: it is not first line therapy or generally a great uh, treatment for pa chronic pain, right? But the big difference is uh, VA DOD, and it had to be based on evidence based medicine. Came in rec. We recommend against. That it, and, and the key word is initiation of opioids, right? It's the initiate. It doesn't mean if you're on opioids, you have to come off. It says we recommend against initiation. Why? Because the burden of risk is so great for our veterans, long term. Looking the greater the dose, the longer the longevity. The longer the greater the risk for developing OUD and or addiction and or which raises the potential of overdose and death exponentially. So that is a key recommendation. But really, the CDC and VA DOD guidelines complement one another fabulously. Both are misapplied uh, often, and I have a lot of concerns for that. Both basically lean on caution at 50 milligrams. Uh, we are saying we recommend against initiation of opioids for chronic pain. And of course, we're not talking about end of life. I think we all know that, or cancer pain. We're talking about general chronic pain, okay? So I think that's huge. And here's the bottom line. Whatever you do, and uh, I apologize, I'll shut up after this. Uh, this is really important, folks, and I mean this. Uh, I've done 1,400 reviews uh, and tapers. Uh, over the last couple of years. And when I did that, the most important thing I did on the review was making sure that taper was slow, very slow, to the patient's need. And it, it, it does a lot of things. It's not so much evidence-based as common sense in our da uh, daily clinical practice. One, it allows that patient to acclimate to the significant change in life from a biopsychosocial perspective. That's scary. You've been on medications for 25 years at high-dose opioid therapy, and now a provider says to you, we're going to take them away, or we're going to lower that dose from 400. We were lowered one from 1,000 
down to about 60 milligrams a day. And that's very scary. So there's a lot of anxiety here. So the slow taper allows them to start to acclimate. It allows, and look, if they've been on long do, uh, longevity and they've been on high doses, there's a very good likelihood they have developed OUD. If you're slowly lowering that, let's say 10% monthly, patient is struggling with that. And you go, you know what, Mr. Smith, I'm going to lower it to 5%. And that patient is still struggling at a 5% reduction, which your body won't even notice. That's the truth. Uh, it takes a 20% increase to have a clinically meaningful event. You know that in palliative care, 20% or more. Same going the other way. So at a 5% reduction, if they're struggling, you need to have them evaluated for OUD. And it now, and how you need time to engage these patients with alternative cares. You need time for that patient to respond to that care, whether it's mental health, skill set, CBT. If you're tapering them off in one month, how are they going to do that? So I plan on a year, six months, a year, two years. I don't care if we're moving in the right direction and the patient's doing better. That's the bottom line. What is the end outcome? Is the patient going to be better than he was? That's what we want. It's not about the numbers and who's got the best metrics in the vision. It's about how each individual responds. Okay. Right. So now we're going to go to the taper uh, in the last three minutes. Uh, so Dr. Sandbrink, do you want to... All right. uh, yeah, so, you know, the point really behind it is that, um, you know, the, the guidelines do not uh, support any abrupt discontinuation. And uh, there has been significant concern about patients being harmed by being discontinued on the opioid suddenly. Uh, if it's done patient-centered, and we will skip through this, it can be, uh, you know, patients can do well, right? And actually, their pain scores can improve after being, you know, tapered to lower amount of opioids or even have come off. Uh, but uh, these studies that document benefit from reduction are largely limited to patients who voluntarily engaged, and that often isn't the reality in what happened. And clearly suicidal ideation and suicide-directed uh, violence, suicide attempts, is a concern. We will talk about that actually in the next session, so I'm going to skip that here. But 9% of the patients who were uh, had tapered had, had these concerns. Uh, so the CDC, and I'm going to skip to go to this here that summarizes a little bit better, both the FDA and the CDC really clarified their stance in so many ways, and you've heard this during this week also. Uh, but what they said in this letter in April uh, is that the guideline does not endorse mandated abrupt discontinuations, and you know because there is acknowledgement of harm that can have has happened to these patients. Specifically, they clarify the recommendation on high dose prescribing focuses on initiation, uh, and uh, you know the, it should be based adjustment should be based on the patient's goal. And the same authors of the CDC guidelines issued this, this language in the New England Journal just a few months ago, where they said there are really no shortcuts to safer opiate prescribing. Taking somebody off suddenly is not safe. It's not a shortcut, right? We have to do this. The patients are on. We have to do this gradually. Uh, acknowledging the harm again. And in the very end, they say starting fewer patients on opioid treatment from the beginning and not escalating to high doses in the first place, and obviously I added this in the beginning for clarification, will reduce number of patients prescribed to high doses in the long term. So our approach really is that we want to promote here in many ways, and uh, I think it really fits very well with the clarification that the CDC has issued, as well as what we've promoted in the, in the VA, 
uh, at least based on the, our VA DOD clinical practice guideline, is that you need to take the patient concerns into account. Absolutely. You need to analyze them for psychological factors contributing. I think a, a provider-patient relationship is really the best basis. Having good communication, having the patient the ability to reach out to you if there are any concerns. But at the very end, I think uh, we need to bring the patient on board. A patient who's motivated to come and reduce their opioid medication over time is going to be much more successful when it's a physician provider, not just initiated, but mandated against the concerns of the patient. Uh, and we, we are obviously um, particularly concerned, and this is really in the last bullet there, that patients continue to be at, at risk for overdose and suicide, especially after their medications have been lowered or stopped, right? And if the medication gets stopped, think about what happens. A patient was seeing this provider, the team, every month. And a lot of times, after the last prescription, it's like, I don't need to see you next month anymore. Come back in six months. So you not only stop the medication, you stop the communication. You stop the safe follow-up that the patient had. They knew they had an appointment in a month to talk to you about any concerns, but you took that away. So one of the things that we have to do is follow up after you stop medication. Allow there to be a safe harbor for the patient to say, these are my concerns, because what, what happens is that weeks to months later, they will have protected withdrawals. Typically, this can happen, right? I mean, they, they cannot sleep. They still feel have no energy. And then there's this nagging thought, wasn't I better on opiate medication? And they might go to another provider and get medication because they don't want to come back to you. Sometimes they don't want to disappoint you because you're the one who was so excited about getting them off. Right, so they go somebody else, or they buy things from the street, but now they are not tolerant anymore. And that's when the death happens. So it's important for us to keep the communication, and I think in the very end, that's what we want to do, right? Work with the patient together um, and, um, and, and make sure that we develop the treatment plan and, and do this in a patient-centered way. And I think we, we stop here. Yep, that's, that's, uh, that's it. You guys made it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're two minutes over. <laughs>